This is Barbara Feldon, and you're listening to Everything Fab Four on Salon.com. Everything Fab Four, a podcast focused on fun and intelligent stories about the Beatles. I'm your host, Ken Womack, music culture columnist for Salon.com and a Beatles scholar and historian. No other band, or popular phenomenon for that matter, has enjoyed the global impact the Beatles have and continue to have more than 50 years later. They are part of our human fabric. They created music that continues to bring people together, and just about everyone has their own Beatles story to tell, some that are surprisingly deep and unexpected. This show seeks to draw those stories out in interesting and insightful ways. Remember, it's a Beatles world, and everyone has a story. My mother, who was worked in a drugstore, uh, on her way to work one morning, she said, oh, I hear this, there's a new band on TV on Ed Sullivan tonight that you might be interested in. They're supposed to be all the rage. I hadn't heard a thing about the Beatles up to that point. And then uh, that night, in front of our black and white TV, I saw the Beatles. And just everything changed. It just suddenly was like, oh, this is what I want to do. Today's guest is Kenny Loggins, an American singer-songwriter who has sold more than 25 million albums worldwide and has won two Grammy Awards. Over the years, Loggins' songs have left his musical imprint on the soundtrack of our lives. Over the last four decades, his chart-topping songs have included This Is It, I'm Alright, Footloose, Danger Zone, and many more. In addition to his string of successful recordings, both solo and as a member of the famed duo Loggins and Messina, Kenny became the first major rock star to dedicate himself to recording music for children and families. His album, Return to Pooh Corner, remains the best-selling children's album over the last two decades. His song, Conviction of the Heart, was hailed as the unofficial anthem of the environmental movement by none other than Al Gore when Loggins performed it on Earth Day in 1995 at the National Mall in Washington, D.C. In 2016, he was a recipient of the ASCAP Harry Chapin Humanitarian Award at the annual Chapin Awards hosted by Why Hunger. Later that year, the Guild of Music Supervisors honored the legendary singer, songwriter, and guitarist with the organization's first-ever Icon Award for his outstanding achievements in film, television, and soundtracks. His gift for crafting deeply emotional music is unparalleled, and it's been a part of his life as long as he can remember. In 2022, Hatchet Books published Still All Right, Loggins' long-awaited memoir. In Still All Right, Loggins gives fans a candid and entertaining perspective on his life and career as one of the most noteworthy musicians of the 1970s, 80s, and beyond. Welcome, Kenny Loggins. I know my listeners are going to be very interested in learning more about where it all started. Did you grow up in a musical family? No, I didn't. Um, although my big brother was very influential in, in my getting into music in general. You know, he was uh, the one who would, he's four years older, almost five years older than me, and he would turn me on to um, the music that he loved. And so even as an eight-year-old, 
my, my folks gave me a Bugs Bunny record and he gave me a rock and roll record. And it was a Green Door. I don't remember the artist, but I remember thinking, this is okay, but this isn't the stuff that I love. And so he started showing me his record collection, big box, you know, books full of 45s. And, and then on into his uh, albums, I remember the Skyliners and lots of Fats Domino and of course, the little Richard and stuff like that. So you know, it was one thing led to another. <laughs> now, did you um, did you become a musician after uh, this kind of uh, musical introduction, <laughs> courtesy of your brother? How did how did playing the yeah. guitar or even imagining being a songwriter come about? Well, um, playing the guitar happened in during the folk period. I t started taking guitar lessons from a folk singer, big brother of a friend of mine. Uh, and, and in the process, he turned me on to Bob Dylan, Bob Dylan's songs before actually I'd heard Bob Dylan sing. And, um, and so I learned blowing in the wind from Rod and not from Dylan. And um, I had sort of started a folk group and then, of course, the Beatles happened on Ed Sullivan. And uh, I just happened to see them. My mother, who was worked in a drugstore, uh, on her way to work one morning, she said, oh, I hear this. There's a new band on TV on Ed Sullivan tonight that you might be interested in. They're supposed to be all the rage. I hadn't heard a thing about the Beatles up to that point. And then uh, that night, in front of our black and white TV, I saw the Beatles and just everything changed. It just suddenly was like, oh, this is what I want to do. And, you know, the folky thing still hung in there because the Beatles and, and the Dylan era of folk music were cross, um, uh, what's the word? You know what I mean? Uh, they infused each other, like the way Dylan influenced Norwegian wood. Mm, uh, yes. When things sort of cross-pollinated is what I was looking for. There it is. <laughs> and it, it worked into, you know, that's where the birds came from. And uh, so the birds having an animal name was obviously a playoff from the Beatles. But uh, uh, their influences were still very folky. And so by this point, you're playing the guitar, right? You're, you're involved. Well, I would steal the guitar off my brother's wall. Uh, I didn't have one. I was probably a sophomore in high school, junior maybe. And, um, and he had a guitar that he would use for decorating his room. And so I would sneak into his room, take it down and play it, and then put it back up before he got home from school. Uh, he was in college. And so, you know, he would give me a lot of shit if I got caught. So I, <laughs> I tried not to get caught as best I could until one day I opened up a Beatles songbook and said, let's sing some stuff together. He and I had sung together from when I was very young. And, and so I started playing Beatles songs for him and he was very pleased about that. So we sang, we sang together for a while. And so was there a moment when that guitar became your guitar? No, I think I jumped over. That was kind of what you call a piece of shit. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, so I jumped over that guitar as quickly as I could. But I, uh, the next guitar I got was not all that much better. It was a K. Oh, yeah. Nylon string guitar. And, 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 but the nylon strings made it easier to learn. So whenever any of my kids or young people ask me, you know, 
uh, what, what should I learn on? I recommend they learn on a thin-necked nylon string guitar because it's easier on your fingers. I'm teaching a Bruce Springsteen class this semester, and one of Bruce's first guitars was a K. Oh, yeah, that's nuts. And, or a Silvertone, which was, which was a Sears brand. The Silvertone, the bass player had a Silvertone bass in my first band. Those were good guitars to learn on. We had a Silvertone when I was uh, was in high school, and it was it was brutal to play. You had to really work hard. <laughs> I know. I don't recommend that kind. Of, you know, I literally played as so many young players of that era. Maybe now even uh, I played till my fingers were bleeding, and <laughs> that's that's the definition of of passion. You know, if you can make it all the way up to that and not have noticed before that. So what was it on that that first night on the Sullivan show that that attracted you, you know, in into the Beatles world? You know, I think anthropologists will be asking that question for, for a long time. <laughs> Some kind of strange magic was happening. This is, of course, my opinion, um, because so many artists that I've met and worked with saw that show and were influenced like at that point, as Jimi Hendrix said, you put down the folk music and you move on. And it wasn't just the girls screaming. That's too easy an answer. It was it was the electricity of it. It was the that you, you could picture yourself playing in a band like that. You could be four guys or five guys. Back then, it was all about guys. Uh, and. And, and uh, it seemed doable and musically very pleasing. There was something about it that was so much fun. It was the magic of the Beatles. You know, they just captured everybody at that moment, the right place at the right time. So what was your right place at the right time then over the, the rest of the decade, et cetera, as, as you began to find your way? Um. Well, I was still writing on acoustic guitar, so my stuff was more finger pick oriented, finger picking oriented, and um, I didn't have anyone around to mentor me into a rock and roll phase at that time. It really wasn't until I met Messina that I started learning to play electric guitar. Um, so my stuff, my influences were, uh, as I said, you know, the folk era Dilla but also into Donovan and then into Tim Harden. Danny's song was very much influenced by Tim Harden. But when I look at that, my Winnie the Pooh song um, and all the chord changes in that, I have no idea where, where that came from, but I have a feeling that it came from learning uh, Lennon McCartney songs because Paul was very advanced at adding chords to songs that people hadn't done before. That's interesting. Um, and of course, you just by that point been treated to this very interesting. Speaking of that strange magic, you, you've watched the Beatles go from the Sullivan show to Sergeant Pe well, a revolver to Sergeant Pepper to the White Album, you know, to Abbey Road. Um, what a journey, right? I mean, <laughs> do yeah. you have any thoughts about experiencing that in real time uh, for our listeners? Yeah. Um, that it's a, that's a good question. I, I would have actually done some homework on that one had I known. Um, I think that as I learned some of the songs of the Beatles, that 
their their way of turning a phrase, their way of of working chordal movements in that I hadn't expected to hear um, influenced my own writing. And but everything was influencing my writing then. You know, the Beatles was just one aspect of it. Um, I was you know, one of the kids that would go to the Troubadour on weekends, and I saw Cat Stevens there for the first time when he was touring with a bass player. I saw James Taylor when he did his first tour off of Sweet Baby James. Um, and so all that music was coming in and going through and coming out again as something else. Um, and, you know, it, I consider James Taylor the poet laureate for the United States during that period of time. Uh, and he's, he's continued to keep his standards up. And of course, then there's Paul Simon and Simon and Garfunkel and another one of the premier American writers. So for me, I was I was mostly moved by the introspective stuff, James and Paul, especially um, where the things they were saying that you would slap your head and go, God, I wish I'd said that. Like, you know, that really nails something I'm feeling and I haven't been able to put it into words. So I, I set out to become that kind of writer where I could dig in deep and find those things that are moving me and influencing me and try to write about them in a way that people would relate to it in their own lives. And I think that's the magic of the poetry of our era. And, and speaking of that era, so one, one of the, the most beautiful things to flower, in, in my opinion, and please correct me if, if you see it differently, but one of the most beautiful things to fly, flower out of, you know, the Beatles progressive art is the singer songwriter era, which just flows so beautifully um, from the late 60s, just all across the 70s in, in just a, an incredible um, array of music. And when you look at the 60s versus the 70s, there's almost uh, infinitely more variety, right, that comes along in the wake of, of the Beatles dream or whatever we want to, whatever magical words we want to ascribe to it. Yeah. Um, the, it, it almost seems like your work and, and many of the, the greats you just named, Fleetwood Mac, right? We could go on all day with all these, these wonderful sounds and, and songs that, that emerged. Is that a good way to look at the singer-songwriter period, or, or is there a better one? No, I, I think you're right. And it all became something of the people. Um, before then, I think I thought of songwriters as Tin Pan Alley. I thought I saw them as professionals who, you know, were usually piano players holed up in an office somewhere. And then all of a sudden it became, I think, the combination of, of Bob Dylan and the folk era in, and then the explosion of the Beatles in the rock era just all came together to say, yeah, you can do this. You buy a guitar, like the, like the Bird song said, just buy an electric guitar, take some time and learn how to play. We'll be back with more from Kenny Loggins after these messages. We're back with everything Fab Four. You mentioned uh, Pooh Corner earlier, and I, I know that's the first song I heard that, uh, by you um, mm -hmm. uh, you had written. And it, it went, I recall vividly hearing it and thinking, you can do this. You can write a story and tell a story, a well-known story, right? A.A. A. Milne, and do it. Uh, with music. Can you tell me about 
where that came from? Where was the germ for that song? Well, a, a couple of germs. <laughs> one, <laughs> one was that uh, House of Pooh Corner was the first book I ever actually read when I was a little kid. And it had that classic Winnie the Pooh influence on me. You know, there's, there's something, again, magical about Winnie the Pooh. Uh, and he, unbeknownst to me, he represented my childhood. And then when I was about to graduate from high school, I sat down and wrote a song about the, the, uh, the leaving of one's childhood. And that was House of Pooh Corner. So I wrote myself into the story. And the pivotal line for me was, I've wandered much further today than I should. And I can't seem to find my way back to the wood. So it was the loss of childhood. Oh, that's, that's beautiful. I, I was not familiar with that, and I appreciate that. And, of course, I can see your Beatles influences there because of nostalgia, trying to find your way back home to some kind of home, um, dealing with loss, all of those heartbreaking things that make for great story. Yeah, and and I got incredibly lucky that I was allowed to record it because – when the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band was about to be the first band to record that song, um, the Disney lawyers put a stop to it. And I happened to have a friend who was the daughter of the CEO of the Disney Corporation. So she took me to meet her father and I sang um, House, House of Pooh Corner with my buddy Doug and, and he called off the dogs. And it was because of that connection that I'm the only other person to get to write or record a song about Winnie the Pooh. <laughs> so how can they do that when uh, obviously they're their characters, but, you know, it's homage, isn't it? Yeah, one could argue that, but I think I would have lost the argument. It's, <laughs> it's a copywritten character that they owned. At the time, they split the ownership with the Milne estate. Interesting. So, and of course, I'm thinking in 2023 and not in the time when it was written, um, when surely things looked a lot differently <laughs> to the Disney folks. Yeah, yeah. They, and they weren't sure if they wanted some hippie to be, you know, cut, taking a piece of their character. But luckily, I, I had the right friend. Well, speaking of friends, you and, and Messina certainly had a great run, um, uh, without a doubt. Can you tell me about how that got started and and just the particulars of it? Well, um, I had uh, been listening to Buffalo Springfield for a couple of years. It was a, a major influence of me on me when I was a senior in high school and on in into the next year. And um, and when I saw that Jimmy Messina was the producer of Last Time Around, their last record, and played bass, I thought, this is somebody I should contact. You know, maybe he would be the right kind of producer for my stuff. And, um, and so I, I set about trying to find him. And simultaneously, there were other people. My brother and uh, his boss at Discount Records were both drafted by Clive Davis to become A&R trainees for Columbia Records. And so my brother and, and Don Ellis um, were reaching out to Messina at the same time because of his Poco connection and and the fact that Jimmy had decided he, he quit Poco and decided he wanted to be a producer. So I figured he must be looking for somebody to produce, right? So I'm going to 
try and find him. So the forces just sort of all came together to where we finally met. And uh, I went over to his house and met him and and had dinner and auditioned, basically, you know, showed him the stuff I had. And it wasn't like, oh, my God, this guy's great. Let's he wasn't sure. It was like and I like this kid, but he's kind of folky. He wanted to do something for rock. And he had just left Poco. He actually interviewed Dan Fogelberg as well, but Dan wanted to do Poco again. He wanted to do country rock. And Jimmy said, I know country rock isn't going to work. So and that's, I don't want to go back into Poco again. So he passed on Dan. And for lack of anybody better to do, he decided to produce me. And uh, luckily, then he showed me some of his material and, one thing led to another, and the next thing we knew, we were a duo. I sure hate that Dan Fogelberg's no longer with us. What a loss. Yeah, he was, he was really great, but also another tortured singer-songwriter. Oh, is that right? Yeah, he had his demons. Oh, man, I did not know. Um, uh, I, I did get a chance to catch him once in a, a solo acoustic show in Houston, and it was marvelous. Yeah, he was really good. <laughs> well, so uh, one of the things we also talk a lot about um, in, in my courses, certainly that I teach, are is the incredible competition that defines the 1970s in popular music. Mm. Uh, again, just the sheer proliferation of so many different types of artists, different genres battling it out on the charts. Um, and and there's Kenny Loggins, certainly in the mix, um, as as the '70s are heating up toward the end. Um, is that a good way to look at the '70s? Did it feel that way from your perspective when you'd look out there and see all of this great and very different kind of music unfolding? Um, it just seemed to me it, it was like, and I have to remember, I was eighteen, nineteen, twenty, and to me it was like this huge opportunity that I knew I was going to get a turn at. Um, because rock and roll was a high turnover business. You know, it's yes, it's crowded, but at the same time, acts in those days, and even now, I think mostly acts don't last more than three years. And my, my first time Loggins and Messina hit, my business manager, who I got at that time, said, well, we can expect a three or maybe four year run for you. And so we're going to financially plan your life so that you'll have something to speak to, to hold on to when this is over. And, uh, but I saw, you know, when I was living in a $65 a month, dupe, half a duplex in East LA, um, I knew I was going to get a turn. And so I didn't perceive it as, oh my God, it's so crowded. How, how is anybody ever going to hear me? I, I knew, capital K, I knew that I was going to get a shot at it. And so I just wanted to be prepared for when that day came. And so, so when did you realize in quotation marks, right? You've made it. Well, that took a long time. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, I think it's kind of normal to not perceive yourself as having made it. Um, I, I have a friend of mine we were just talking yesterday and he's a really excellent guitarist and has been a well-known sort of s s subtext guitarist 
in, in the world since the 70s. And he was talking about how he had this opportunity and that maybe that he'd get recognized as the guitarist that he was. And I said, dude, the only one who hasn't recognized you is you. <laughs> Everyone else knows you're there and knows that you play and can call you at any moment for anything. It's like that. But, but for one to perceive oneself as having arrived, um, I think that takes quite a while. You know, I think it, it, it goes hand in hand with your own self-esteem, where, where you place yourself in your, in your world. I suppose that goes along right with the artist's journey, which is, as I explain it to folks, sometimes it's a, it's a narrative that you embark upon, but maybe you never arrive at the conclusion. Yeah, I, I'm not sure that, that there is a full arrival. I mean, I, writing my memoirs last year was important for me because I had not stepped back and taken a look at my own life from from the point of view of my own personal history and where I've been and what I've done and uh, what I've experienced and where the music comes from, you know, to see, just to really assess my family of origin and what how that influenced me to become a musician, to become a songwriter, to stay with it, you know. Uh, I had a very supportive dad, and I think for me that that's been instrumental in the fact that I've had a long career and, um, and I've never been desperate about my career, but I have been determined. I have always been focused and determined and moving forward and constantly trying to improve, constantly trying to learn. And that's part of why I collaborate because when I run out of things that are what I know, I want to turn to those who know more and say, well, what would you do here? And how would you approach this? And I know this song needs a bridge, but I don't know what, I don't know what to do. And by working with other writers, I learn more and I get more tricks in my hands and in my belt and can figure, okay, now what will I do? So at some point I would love to get all those things that I've learned onto paper, but maybe after this year's tour, I can start to focus on mentoring and writing. So you mentioned collaboration and the part of the richness of the Kenny Loggins songbook definitely has to do with seeking out collaborations, Stevie Nicks, um, Michael McDonald, certainly. And then even in another way, am I correct, collaborating uh, in in terms of soundtracks and being part of the stories that happen on the big screen? Yeah, yeah, that that was all accidental, um, or in a way. I mean, I don't want to underplay it because you know I had to show up and write that stuff. But um, I hadn't really planned on moving into the the movie world. Um, it wasn't necessarily a dream of mine, but it was part of what I was raised on because my big brother turned me on to soundtrack albums all the time. But um, I had worked with Barbara Streisand. That was the first where I put my toe in the water um, on her Star is Born remake. And in the process of getting to know Barbara and, and working up I Believe in Love with her, uh, I got to know her boyfriend, and his name was John Peters. 
and he would later be known as part of a duo, Goober Peters, which made some huge movies. But this was the first movie that he'd had anything to do with, was her remake on Stars Born. When they broke up, he decided he'd try it on his own and made a movie called Caddyshack. So his first outing was wildly successful. And because we were friends, he called me up and said, would you come by the studio and check this out? I'd love for you to write a song for it. And so, you know, just to hang out with a friend of mine, I went to see what he was doing and he's making a movie. Uh And next thing you know, it's Caddyshack. And then another friend of mine wrote a screenplay and his screenplay was called Footloose. So as a favor to my friend Dean Pitchford, we wrote a couple of songs together and one of them was the title song. So there's that. And then I, then I get called finally the, the professional way to do it is to get a call from a, you know, a movie house or a, a you know, Paramount or somebody like that. Or in this case, it was, uh, um, 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 uh, crap. I just blanked on their names. Another couple of big movie guys, uh, which people will slap me in the face for forgetting. Which, um, which song are we talking about? Talking about Top Gun, the first Top Gun. Okay, I, I, I just want to help and see if I can put you out of your misery here. You can Google that while I, while I tell the story <laughs> of going to a cattle call to, you know, where there were hundreds of acts that were invited to write for that movie. And I went to a screening, early screening of Top Gun. This young artist, this young uh, actor that they had high hopes for, Tom Cruise, and it seemed like a pretty cool thing. And I watched a rough cut and it was pretty amazing. I started work on a scene. There was a scene in the movie, a volleyball scene, that where the action sort of slows down. And I thought, nobody's going to write for this scene. I should, you know, go where there's no competition. <laughs> so I wrote um, Playing with the Boys. And while in the studio recording Playing with the Boys... I got a call from Giorgio's office and Giorgio needed a singer for the song because apparently the singer they had had dropped out. And um, so I jumped on board, met with Tom Whitlock. We co-wrote some stuff on that. And then I went in the studio one or two days later with Giorgio and and sang the, the vocal to uh, Danger Zone. And that was that was the first time that I'd even heard the tune was with Tom at my house. <laughs> That's incredible. So are we talking about Don Simpson, Jerry Bruckheimer? Yeah, Bruckheimer Simpson, right. The powerhouse. They're still at it. So, That's right. They're not done yet. Yeah. Um, so and, and that's a kind of collaboration, right, where you watch a scene and develop a song to um, complement or accent it. It, it is a type of collaboration in that the song has got to, in, in a perfect world, nowadays it's a lot looser standards, but in a perfect world, the song should enhance the scene. And if that's done well enough, the song then becomes inextricably connected to that movie. And it's the power of the movie that enhances the power of the song and vice versa. Well, and certainly I'm All Right does that. Uh, for, for Caddyshack and, and vice versa. I, um, 
I could only confess this to you. I remember the first time I heard that tune. I was driving in my with my dad and his Cutlass Supreme, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, the radio was on. And um, I had discovered the Beatles late, and of course by then solo careers were in full bloom. And I was thinking, is that the new Paul McCartney single? <laughs> yeah, that's funny. Uh, you're talking about I'm all right. I am. And I, and, and I, you know, especially with all of the different kinds of sounds you create and moods and movements uh, that the song has, it has all of those little miniature movements inside oh, of it. Heartbeating thing in the middle of it. I don't know where that came from. <laughs> it's probably my Beach Boys upbringing. It could be, but I, I figure if there's one person who could respect me mistaking it for Paul McCartney, it's got to be you. Absolutely. I'm, I'm flattered. It was, uh, and I was very pleased when I learned who it was. And uh, uh, of course, naturally, good consumers I was went out and bought it so I could play it over and over again. And and yeah, that heartbeat section is so. Um, it, it's like a, it's very much like those great, uh, multivarious Paul McCartney songs, like Uncle Albert Admiral Halsey, right? Where you go on all these miniature journeys, right. Yeah, that's probably where I learned to do that. And Paul Simon did it in in uh, one of his tunes, uh, uh, Faking It. You remember Faking It, where he goes oh, off yeah. into this. Good morning, Mr. Leach. Have you had a busy day? This whole sort of side trip of, well, he's daydreaming right now. And it made, it made all things possible to hear that done in that way. Oh, yeah. Uh, I but do that, need that, that. Where that came from, that performance, was because it, there's there's a thing called temp music. When you go see a movie that hasn't been dubbed with music yet, the director will pick music that kind of feels like what he wants there from his own collection or her own collection. And so the clue as a songwriter is what is the temp music? What is the director picked to fill that spot? And when I saw Caddyshack, the director had picked a Bob Dylan song at the beginning of Caddyshack where Danny's riding his bicycle through suburbia America. And I thought, well, that's a weird marriage. I don't, it was a Dylan's uh, serve somebody. Mm. And it didn't make any sense to me to see a kid on a bicycle with Dylan singing the, the theme. And I, I thought about it. I thought, what, why is that there? And then when you got to the end of the movie and Danny changes from wanting to be in the country club to basically telling them all to stuff it and go his own way. And that's when he became the rebel. And I thought, okay, it's foreshadowing Danny's transformation. So my song can be kind of Dylan-esque in that way. I want it to be kind of like, basically, if I may say, fuck you people, I'm doing what I want to do. And that's where the idea for I'm all right came from. I'm all right, nobody worry about me. Why you got to give me a fight? Can't you just let me be? That's the misunderstood teen. And... In the process of that, there was, at the same time, there was a, a song on the radio by a group called Steeler's Wheel called uh, Stuck in the Middle with You. And it was basically Jerry Rafferty doing his imitation of Bob Dylan. And I thought, hell, if, if Rafferty can do it, I can do it. So that's where I, I sort of copped that attitude when I sang the vocals on I'm All Right. I'm all right. Nobody worry about me. Getting into the gravel voice. <laughs> And, uh, and, and it served me well. <laughs> Every 
Rising Fab Four is presented by Salon.com, the premier news, politics, innovation, and arts website. For more information, visit EverythingFab4.com, where you can learn more about our podcast and my latest Beatles-related books, including John Lennon 1980, The Last Days of the Life, and a forthcoming biography about the love of the Beatles wrote in the Everything Fab Four theme song, Seize the Day, is provided courtesy of Black Rabbit, the high-octane Beatles cover band and innovative psychedelic rock project from Rockaway Beach, Queens, New York City. Like what you heard today on Everything Fab Four? Be sure to subscribe, give us a rating, and recommend the show to your friends. Plus, you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at ef 4 Podcast. Distributed by Salon, Everything Fat Four is a Wonderwall production. Remember, it's a Beatles world, and everyone has a story. <laughs>